Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 783rd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who teaches others about wild food and fungi. We're talking with Christian Marr about marvelous and modest mushrooms. Christian has been studying mycology and cultivating fungi for over 13 years. She has a BS in biology plus an associates of engineering and recently founded Closed Loop Lab LLC with her business partner and microbiologist Beth Kennedy. Christian is very passionate about education and citizen science. She truly believes that the intersection of community building scientific efforts, and looking to the natural world for solutions will be the sweet spot for healing our human livelihood and our relationship to nature. Christian identifies as a fungi fairy and spends most of her free time roaming the woods, foraging, pursuing flow arts, and other artistic creations and earth skills. Closed Loop Lab has built an extensive fungi culture library, including local species and strains harvested from the wild, and have been providing quality fungi cultivation products to the local Asheville community, as well as creating fungi cultivation installations for local landowners and homesteaders. Welcome to the show today, Christian. Are you ready to rock? I am ready. Let's do this. Awesome. So (laughs) I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to go to get where you're at today? It's been a meandering path of sorts, but really all based in my passion for the natural world. Growing up, both my parents are pretty science-oriented. My dad is a marine biologist, and I just always had this kind of foundational preface for life of how to look at the natural world in kind of a lens of the intricacies as my dad would give me bedtime stories of cell biology, (laughs) ecosystem services, and all of this. That was very primed in me growing up. And then also another piece that's pretty significant to my just my life path. I had some pretty serious autoimmune conditions growing up and spent time pursuing Western medicine, but I really only found healing mostly through definitely diet, but also herbalism approaches and working with medicines that exist in nature. Yeah, I'm just going way back to the origins right now, but that that just, I have always felt very at home in the natural world and felt just so much support um, and this sense of belonging that I don't really find as easily in other parts of society. You grow up going to school, it's told that you got to go to college and such, which college is cool, but also I think there's a lot of different ways to learn. But I did pursue academic paths of biology and engineering, which I'm very grateful for all of my education and certain mentors and teachers um, through that path as well. But then definitely having gone through a lot of those kind of structured academic settings, I also found a big drive to try to experience other types of learning through going to permaculture settings or communities that are living through more sustainable and outside of the grid type of approaches. And 
this sort of thing. And that's really where I started finding these pieces of, I just, I love all the intersectional spaces. I did work in formal research and such in labs Mm -hmm. at various points in my life. And I love research and it's, it feels really good to me, but there is definitely, there's these points of disconnect where it just sometimes feels these incredible studies that are being done, tons of money dumped into them and these super fancy facilities are, they reach a handful of academics who do a review on a paper and that's that. And it's okay where is this getting applied and then contrasting that with going to spaces where people are trying to develop communities living close to the land and healing our relationship with each other and the land and yeah I just found this desire to bring some of those worlds together more and completely get that yeah and then of course with I haven't even started talking about mycology and fungi but that they're really through the biology that I learned through fungi and just getting pulled more and more into my passion for that field. There's so many metaphors and <laughs> it's it's all metaphor. It's crazy. Even the most technical information from the natural world, but also from fungi, It's there's so much metaphor of how we can approach how we live together on this earth. And definitely there's people who exhibit this as well, who I have learned from a lot. It can feel really challenging sometimes because there's not a lot of pre-existing spaces that are doing this, but find these pockets where we can connect, connect the pieces of our world that are disconnected. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know that went broad, but that's, awesome. that's <laughs> great. some of the origin story. <laughs> so let, let's jump in and talk about mycelium and how they relate to the mushrooms we eat. What what are mycelium? Yeah, so mycelium is the, the main part of the fungi, um, of the fungal organism. So when you see a mushroom, it's what we just call the fruit body. And that's, the mushroom itself is one way that the fungi can reproduce, but I also think it's one way that it actually presents itself to engage with us macro organisms walking around on the planet because yeah there's there's all sorts of ways they engage with us they're delicious and a lot of them are medicinal and have crazy structures and they're so beautiful and sometimes they just look psychedelic art in themselves right Um, but, but the mycelium is the main part of the organism i think one of their metaphors is really inviting us to connect to the inner world. So the mycelium is in the soil, inside of the wood, and it does a lot of jobs that are somewhat unseen from a surface level. Of course, if you have a little bit of context of what you're looking at, you do see their activity immensely, but they do Mm. the decomposition and they do a lot of just creating a network between all levels of life where they are transferring nutrients and chemical signaling information, all sorts of data. Mycelium is also the major carbon sink of the world. So it is- Yes, even more so than plants. And so that's why one of the reasons why soil science is so promising for addressing climate change issues and this sort of thing, because they really do have this power of holding chemical constituents, being a carbon sink, but also changing any type of 
compound from one form to another so that it can become bioavailable for other levels of life, whereas it wouldn't. If the fungi were not present, when something dies, that those nutrients would never be recycled into more life. So they're just holding these nodes of between life and death and connecting one seemingly very different organism to another. Essentially, mycelium are the roots and branches primarily underground, right? Yes, they do primarily exist underground, the mycelium. If we're talking about just the fungal organism as a whole, we got spores absolutely everywhere as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yes. And the spores are the seeds. Essentially, yes. They yeah. are little packets of information that contain all the necessary information. There's theories that they are what the spores is what brought the DNA and RNA and essential compounds to the planet Earth to then seed it for life, for further life. Um, Wow. So mycelium are really cool. Are there other capabilities of mycelium that we may not be aware of? Yeah, it's very complex. We are just barely scratching the surface right now of our understanding of their full capabilities and roles. It is interesting that a lot of the natural world communicates through chemical signaling. And we do, as humans, have some understanding of chemical signaling, but it is definitely a level of complexity that we are still very young in our understanding of. As humans, it's interesting, and other animals too, but that we communicate mostly through sound waves. There's all sorts, pretty much in any realm of biological sciences, even more technological or engineering realms, that we can look at mycelial systems as a model for developing our own technologies such as information storage, transfer of information, breakdown of pollutants that are very harmful in the world, and medicine for sure, all the layers. So you have a friend of yours who was influenced by your explanation of mycelium. Can you tell me about that? Yes. So this is a very good friend. Her name's Susanna uh, Speccia. She runs a kind of a think tank organization in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm -hmm. It is called Kid Opal. And um, they, they do a lot of different work, but she came on one of my foraging tours and she was already intrigued by mushrooms, but we got to talking about how mycelium functions in nature, the roles it plays, etc. And she was just so inspired that she has taken this as a framework for some of the ways that she is running her organization and connecting to people and bringing together these networks of people in very different fields to create these big systems thinking approaches. So she's very, Kid Opal is very interested in looking at how in the structures of our society, how corporations exist and businesses exist, and even the physical structures of cities and towns, how humans are connecting to each other and how they're also disconnected and isolating and how we can leverage the ways that we connect and share information and emotions and all of our human processes to then heal 
things that are going on in our communities. And yes, it's really inspiring. I highly recommend looking into their work, but they are using a lot of the functionality of mycelium as a framework to and and metaphor to try to um, connect people, find solutions, uh, even develop technologies. They are even working with various types of computer programming and sensory technologies that measure physiological responses for people in various therapeutic settings and this kind of thing. So, yes. What what was the name of their organization again? Kid Opal. And so a lot of what you just talked about is something that we mentioned in your bio Mm -hmm. and it's around citizen science. Can you Tell us what that is first and then what you're working on in that area. Certainly, yeah. Citizen science is definitely something I'm very passionate about as I think it really represents this way of connecting in this world. Biology and science is often the way that it's taught can be very discouraging and elitist and exclusive and just discourage people from even wanting to be curious about looking at the natural world through a curiosity scientific lens. But it's really every individual has their own unique ways of observing and understanding things that they observe. And we have so many people who are just living in different spaces, who are part of a community. The community includes their ecosystem because that is something they engage with, at least at some level on every day. And it would advance our technologies, our daily lives, our um, understanding of the world so exponentially if we were to really I don't know, shift our approach and see each individual engaging with their environments as a way of taking in more information that we can then use in formal scientific studies. And this can be really simple, just people going out and taking photographs of a certain, a plant, a certain, looking for a certain plant, for example, and documenting where it's blooming at a certain time, at a certain elevation, etc. There's some different forms that we can um, do citizen science in. One form that's really fun is called a bio blitz. And so that's just basically gathering a group of people and it's scavenger hunt and you just go into the woods looking for certain types of data and then where you know you can make it really fun um you can make a game out of it or find it's it's also just really fun to be in the woods with people from all different backgrounds and and then that can really actually contribute to the body of knowledge of biology in a way that We are actually making new discoveries. And especially with mycology, there's a lot of room and potential for this because the field of mycology is growing immensely right now. But for so long, it was really misunderstood and even in some ways suppressed. And it is very possible for someone just if they are hiking and they're just collecting mushrooms, documenting things, it is very possible for just anyone to discover a new species on a given day because there is so much to discover. Um, I've heard that. And mm-hmm. so there's a couple of citizen science things that I interact with. One of cool. them is rainlog.org. 
And, uh-huh. it, and I recently had the guys from Rainlog on the podcast. And oh, cool. Basically, it's a website to report your rain gauge data every day. Nice. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, so, so that's pretty cool. That is. And the other one that I use is an app called Seek by yes. iNatural. And interesting, I was listening to a podcast recently and two high school students had mm-hmm. found new subspecies of scorpions in California oh, wow. by using the iNatural app. So it's amazing, right? iNaturalist is definitely, I would say, one of the OG forms of citizen science. And it's just, yeah, you can download it on your phone and it's mm-hmm. just such an easy way. It really takes almost no effort. And right. what you find is you literally could be making an, a completely new discovery in your area. It's amazing. And then you can also... I'm a nerd. I love databases. Um, I love bodies of data. Um, But then you also yourself have access to that data. And it just like a great way to start getting curious about things. And how can I use this information? How can I look at this immense biodiversity around me and use it to actually just create happiness in my life even? Mm -hmm. for, for example, that's iNaturalist contributes to a ton of studies and publications because of the data gathered by citizen scientists. And then also you could, for example, if you're really wanting to figure out how to find morels, for example, which are very elusive and very tricky little mushrooms because they are, people go crazy for them, but they're right. very hard to find. But you could go in the morel season onto iNaturalist and look for, look at least in the areas of where they've been reported in your area Ah. and look at the type of environments they're occurring in and yeah, just create a little adventure for yourself of, of discovery. Wow. (laughs) How cool is that? It's a lot of fun. Right. And you do foraging walkabouts with people. Mm -hmm. And when somebody's walking with you, what can someone expect to find what are you seeing yeah i i adore foraging and foraging is i think i have seen such magical interactions between humans and nature via foraging because this is um something that all of us have in our dna in our human history this is a way of life that we really have been severed from in our modern world. And so it just brings me so much joy to help people get back into the environments and find and have this type of interaction where you're harvesting the food that you nourish yourself with. Mm -hmm. Gardening and cultivation is amazing and I'm passionate about it as well. But there's this kind of other level of going into the forest and finding these foods that are a lot of the wild food flavors to me are just you cannot replicate them they are not and we don't get to experience them a lot in our modern food systems um, which is so unfortunate and you go into the forest and you just start tuning into the insane abundance. If I really think that a lot of our measures of sustainability and food insecurity and this type of thing are not actually accounting for what resources are just 
a lot of the bulk of what I end up foraging, I, I sure love elusive things that are really tricky to find and you have to, you know, put in the time and effort to hunt down their clues and figure out their habitats and stuff. But then there's also wild foods that are just the weeds that are literally everywhere. And of course, what you're finding really depends on the season and where you are and how much rain and all of these little clues. But regardless of those variable factors, it still constantly blows my mind how much abundance Mm. there is that has taken absolutely no human effort to be there. It is just sprouting up from the earth with immense generosity. And That's a beautiful way of putting it. Thank you. It's very, I really think that it is an amazing way to shift what our, our experience with the natural world, but also just even the framework of mindsets of living in this current society, because there is so much enforcement of scarcity mindset with the way our economic systems are measured and structured and that how that information is presented. But that does not exist in nature. There is not scarcity in nature. Even with the amount of destruction that we have brought to the world with our naivety and greed and all of this, certainly we're seeing very tragic events happen. But if you are really looking at it through a truthful lens, it's okay, yeah, maybe this land here is fully depleted. Give it a few weeks and see how many you literally. Yeah, literally. A few weeks. Literally a few weeks and just see how many weeds start popping up. And then, and people, and that term weeds, it's that's, I think, been somewhat of a marketing, maybe brainwashing scheme because people disvalue weeds, but it's you literally could live off of and there's there are studies that are looking at edible weeds and weeds with lots of uh, nutrient density and um, medicinal compounds as solutions for food insecurity in areas that are food deserts and a lot of these things can just grow um, in the harshest environments with absolutely no help from humans. I do see your passion this was incredible (laughs) and you've been interacting with the public for quite a long time about this, I can tell. I'm going to yes. throw a, a sideways curve at you. And okay. is, is there one incident that comes to mind for you that when you think about it, it's, oh my gosh, yes, this is exactly the reason that I'm doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Do you have a, an mm-hmm. epic that happened in your life that you can share? In different levels, yes. One, I really love working with kiddos because kiddos teach me so much when I work with them. A lot of kids, honestly, and it's really interesting. I also have started to think about how just the way that I perceived the world when I was a kid and how that got conditioned as my, as I went through society and through teaching with foraging, I really see that a lot of kiddos just have the way that they're experiencing the world and discovering things and foraging, searching for food. They just have so much more their brains are primed for learning patterns because in the stages where your brains are where your brain is developing it's primed for learning patterns and so they can pick up on so much more little nuances and just these observations that you might as an adult not 
take a second glance at because they're just, they haven't been told or they haven't in implemented the pattern of, oh no, that's, that's just some random little thing. You don't need to yep. work. They see the wonder in these very minute moments and, and often it makes them really skilled foragers. And wow. And often I have the experience if I'm working with families that the kids have this certain layer of knowledge, even still, even it has persisted, even to our modern age, where there's certain plants that are edible that kiddos will just teach each other. And and an example of this was happened to me when I was a kid there's a plant called wood sorrel uh -huh. if you have a yard you probably have wood sorrel in your yard people often think it's clover but it has these little heart-shaped leaves in yep. yes and it's very delicious lemony and tart and such a wonderful sensory flavor and I think it grows on playgrounds a lot and so kiddos teach it to each other and I it was one of the first wild foods I ate as a very young child without ever knowing what it was or someone just told me to eat it and I we ate it together and very often things like this will be on a tour and the kids are like, yeah we love this snack we eat it all the time blah, blah. and their parents <laughs> are like, you do what <laughs> so glad we are coming to learn about this and that it's not toxic and stuff but it's just this very interesting level of trust in the natural world. Don't get me wrong there. You do want to have this layer of cautiousness when you and respect when you engage with the natural world because there is some potent compounds out there. There are certainly deadly things, but I think just, yeah, I don't know. That's one of the most powerful things for me is working with kids that have not been conditioned to think of themselves as separate from nature because we are not separate we are completely in the health and the state of this earth is fully reflective of what we are going through as a society yeah, yeah. I don't, amen, I hope that. amen to that <laughs> for sure i do want to just put a caveat in here don't put anything in your mouth unless you know what it is <laughs> yes never eat something unless you're a hundred percent sure what that is and that it's safe to eat and also if you are eating something for the first time you have never forged this thing before or even the first several times until you feel lots and lots of confidence with it I always recommend confirming with a human person who has a lot of experience eating that thing before you consume it yourself don't just use a book or the internet it's really and that's another thing I think about foraging and also working with plants and mushrooms is that it actually you learn a lot more and it's a lot more effective if you do take a community approach and you go seek out a mentor or someone who's um, been doing this and you're wanting to engage at that level of interaction. Awesome. Thank you for that. And so you do walkabouts in the Asheville area. Can you tell us mm -hmm. a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. So I've been doing naturalist education for a very long time in a lot of different contexts. And depending on the set and the setting influences what we're going to be learning, how we're going to be engaging, that sort of thing. I have worked 
just privately with people, landowners, or through events. Uh, <laughs> it's really fun to see the, all the different types of venues that have interest in this kind of thing. I've done some foraging education at weddings and birthday parties or oh. festivals, um, which is a lot of fun. I also work with a local company called No Tastes Like Home that's in the Asheville area um, that does foraging tours as well. Um, so both through more structured entities, but also just really any type of opportunity that I can tailor to getting people in the woods and finding food around them. Or yeah, I really love coming to people's properties as well and just telling them about the actual space of land that they are physically mm. living on, because I think that's also a missing part of, not for everyone, and people are getting back to it, I think, but a missing part of our human experience is tending to the very land that you are sleeping upon. Yeah. So... Wow. We go all over Asheville area. There's a lot of, Asheville is amazing in that the mountains are an endless adventure. There's so many mountain nooks and waterfalls and trail systems and um, homesteads and everything. So I'm just constantly tumbling throughout this mountainous terrain. <laughs> nice. And if somebody wants to get a hold of you and interact with you about that, where do we find you? My most direct contact is going to be my email, which is mycelium.christian at gmail.com. So I'm going to shift on you and I would love for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame mm. that failure and what you might have learned from it. There's definitely a lot of things I could say about failure in different moments of failure, but there's a, this certain sense of failure that I have been working with in myself for a while now because I'm neurodivergent. I have ADHD and autism and it's been, and at this point in my life, I'm very happy to understand my functionality and really mm -hmm. understand that just the special parts about it that are different or similar to other people's experiences. But definitely I love learning so much and I am a big nerd, but academic structures sometimes have been really challenging for me, just like the structured classroom setting. And yeah. it's, I think overall, I've been successful in academia because I've really, there was a long, for a very long time that that's the story that I told myself was that I had to go through these things to be successful. Um, mm. And I don't regret being in school and pursuing the structured academia at all. And there's so much that I learned from it, but there's definitely, I... I'm not bad at math. I have failed a lot of math tests in my life <laughs> because I just, I am not a test taker. And it's, mm -hmm. it really, it, for a long time, that just completely shaped how I saw myself and what I can even be capable of and give to the world. And I have two degrees, but, and I've worked in research, but it has been tricky for me to pursue the prescribed path in those senses. The amount of education I have at this point, I could probably have my PhD just in terms of like <laughs> hours given yeah. to academia. And that that kind of, in some ways, there is always, there's that inner critic that I work with of, and it's shifted a lot in, in past years as I've done a lot of work with it, but of yeah. Yeah, just telling myself it's okay to take this other approach. It's okay to learn things through outside of the structures that 
have these whatever so-called credentials that we give to them right. and I can do my own research. That's why I built my own lab and we're working to expand it in many ways. And I don't need to go through these very structured, whatever, I don't, I don't know what the word is, but just, yeah, yeah cultural, it, cultural pieces that we mm -hmm. have to deal with. Yeah, exactly. And it, it actually is so limiting to be in those mm -hmm. spaces. You There's a ton of knowledge. There's a ton of potential. There's mentors and amazing labs with billions of dollars invested into them. But then at the end of the day, I still, in all of my experiences, was coming to this space of how is this information actually being gonna put back into the world? To how is it going to serve me in the world? Exactly. I completely get that. The first time I was in college in 1981, my first year at Arizona State University, I got a 0.5 grade averages. Oh my goodness. Two, two D's and an F. And my dad looked at me and he said, oh, I get it. You don't want to be in college. <laughs> yes. And then I took 19 years off in between, ran five or 10 businesses. Oh, wow. Some of them pretty successfully. And then went back to college in 1999 and it was a different story. So yeah, it was a different game for me too. Mm -hmm. So I hear you. Taking a break is, or not even taking a break, but just sometimes when you're in this setting or this structure where you're experiencing these senses of failure, taking a step back and just getting more perspective and experiencing other ways of being and learning. I got my biology degree and then I said for many years I was going to go back to grad school, but then I realized that I didn't want to go back to grad school for biology because I, and that's why I pursued engineering more because it's more applied and I want to see yeah. my work applied, but I still had to go back and do all the calculus classes that are just a horrific experience for me. But having worked with my inner critic a good bit and tried to detach some of these, oh, this great, this letter that someone's putting on a piece of paper has no reflection of your actual intelligence and worth. And, wow. and that that was very empowering. And all bad. Yes. <laughs> And what do you consider your biggest success? Again, a broad answer, but really one of the biggest success that I have been reflecting on recently and that I just feel such gratitude for that literally it's bringing tears to my eyes right now is just the fact that the majority of my so-called working time is just connecting people with nature and that my office oh. is literally the forest. And I get a lot of reassurance about this constantly and just I was thinking about the other day the amount of people that I have personally myself just taught about foraging or even just any kind of oh this plant is a friend because it offers all of these things I don't have an estimate but it's thousands of people at this point yeah. I could die currently and that's I feel like that's all I really needed to give to the world because the plants and the fungi saved me. They definitely, even physically with my health issues as a child, I fully attribute plant medicine to even being alive at this point in time. And wow. it's full circle. And I can't, it's just like complete closed loop. <laughs> and yeah, I can't think of anything else that I could possibly need from this life. And what drives you? <laughs> well, just sharing 
the healing really and curiosity my brain just really thirsts for discovery in the natural world and I could spend a hundred percent of my time in the forest or in the garden (laughs) and just that and I would say also biodiversity, just the observation of the immense biodiversity and uniqueness in the world. It it gives me all of the life force of just knowing that nature is in support of every type of expression and every type of way of being. And that is intrinsic to being alive. And the limitations we put on ourselves in human society are not... They don't exist in nature. Awesome. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? I hope it's okay if I recommend two books. Of course. (laughs) Absolutely. And they have to be fungal books because that's who I represent. And the fungi are my bosses. But (laughs) (laughs) they sure are. They influence all my life decisions. But Radical Mycology is a really wonderful tome of knowledge if you were curious about mushroom cultivation, how to engage with what the fungi have to offer in terms of just growing them or medicine or abundance of their gifts. But that's a little bit Radical Mycology by Peter McCoy. It's a little more, it's, I wouldn't call it it's a textbook, but it's very, it's a wonderful read. It's very information heavy um, mm-hmm. and a little more technical. And then if you are wanting something that's just a um, bit more of a novel, but it's science writing, but it is not as technical procedural, Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake is a wonderful book on how the world of fungi works and connects with all other levels of life. And did you say that's a fiction book? It's not fiction. I think it's considered science writing. So it is factual information, but it's written in a story format that's very, it has a whimsical feel to it. Um, Yeah, they call, I think they call that creative nonfiction. Yes. There you go. Awesome. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? I would say spend a lot of time outside, be curious about the natural world, and certainly be respectful. But any time that you are out in nature and there, you just feel this little snag in yourself of, oh, that, that caught my eye, that caught my senses in some form or another, listen to that and really just lean in to these or small or large responses in your system when you're engaging with nature because there's something I teach about with foraging that's very interesting in terms of how we are trying to understand in our human history how humans gained the knowledge of what we could eat and what was medicinal to the point to down to very specific points of how we know this plant treats this specific ailment or whatever. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of anthropological studies looking at this where around the world there's a response in some way that you can trace it back that it's recorded that the natural world, the plants, the mushrooms, the animals themselves told the humans how to use them. And that's a very like hard thing to grasp. And I don't really have an explanation of how that worked exactly. But I believe that we 
because on a daily basis, we used to have to be in nature, finding our food and our nourishment and our our livelihood in nature. So I really think there was some other layer of communication that uh, we were more tapped into compared to how we function in the modern times. And so I just really want to encourage people to listen to those little responses in themselves when they're in nature. And oftentimes it's some type of discovery about nature itself, but then often it's actually a discovery about yourself and who you are. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Christian. Of course. Thank you. How can our listeners get a hold of you? Email address, myceliumchristian at gmail.com. My handle on social media is fungi fairy, F-A-E-R-Y, spelt as in the more Celtic origins. Yep. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash closed loop. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams.